Welcome to Unintended Consequences, a podcast about what can go wrong with even the most well-intentioned regulations. Today, we have a trio of topics that don't immediately seem to have anything to do with each other. Whiskey, electricity, and antitrust action. But you'll find the common thread that runs through each of them. You see, when confronted by a crisis, governments face political pressure to just do something, anything, and their subsequent ill-advised actions not only impairs the ability of markets to respond, but ultimately can result in an even worse long-term outcome. We start, as every podcast really should, with whiskey. So if you're listening at home, pour yourself a finger or two of the stiff stuff, settle back in your easy chair, and join us in learning about the century-old crisis of adulterated whiskey. Authors Macy Sheck and Daniel Smith are here to tell us about their paper, Straight Whiskey and Bad Regulation. Macy, Dan, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. We're thrilled to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Okay, so adulteration it isn't a word you hear in ordinary conversation very often anymore. Uh, worrying about adulteration of products in the early 20th century, you crack an archive from back then, it's such a common place a century ago, right? Everything from, are they adulterating the bread? And in this case, whiskey. So what is adulteration? Why were people so concerned about it with whiskey? Yeah, so adulteration, especially in this context of whiskey, was that there were these rectifiers who were controlling most of the market for whiskey at that time against these straight whiskey distillers. So it estimates about 50 to 90% of the market were these rectifiers who were taking neutral whiskey and then flavoring it with ingredients to replicate the taste of straight whiskey and therefore avoid the, the immense expense of aging whiskey in a, in a, in a, in a barrel um, that would be the route for straight whiskey. Lowering costs for consumers, but of course, this introduced the possibility that they may be um, introducing foul substances or even poisonous substances to that whiskey and thus uh, potentially harming consumers. And there were a lot of public health crusaders and politicians and especially straight uh, whiskey manufacturers at that time that were promoting that interpretation that these rectifiers were, were poisoning their consumers. I mean, sounds bad. Poison the whiskey, no one, no one wants, wants that on their shelves. Is this a bootleggers and Baptists kind of situation? I mean, you mentioned that straight whiskey sellers were a part of the outcry about the adulterators. Yeah, and we, we kind of approached this. We were aware of, of previous work, really good scholarship that had identified some public choice reasons. What I mean by public choice is that there are special interest groups such as the straight whiskey distillers that were advocating for consumer protection legislation in order to harm their competitors that they couldn't keep up with these low cost rectifiers that produce or these rectifiers that are producing low cost whiskey um, so they were trying to get regulation to kind of regulate them out of existence or at least reduce their ability to to sell to consumers and thus get a larger market share what we were interested in looking at is actually examining the public health rationales were there in fact, you know, these were the claims that there were there, there's poisonous whiskey, and there does seem to be special interest politics at play. But were there any? Was there any legitimacy to those public health rationales? Okay, so did what did you find? Was there was poisoning a a, a mass problem? Were, were folks keeling over after sipping their adulterated whiskey? Yeah. So for consumer safety, 
there was a few things we looked at, right? And to try to justify whether this was actually that big of a problem and if were consumers in fact safe. The first thing we looked at was consumption. If, if there was this mass adulteration, you would expect to see consumers avoiding rectified whiskey, substituting into aged whiskey um, or straight whiskey as we sort of use interchangeably. There wasn't really any signal that the market was uh, affected by this. There didn't seem to be any drop in consumption. But there was other things we, we looked at too, and um, some of those were chemical analyses. There was sort of independent public health crusaders who would release these chemical analyses. And then there was also states that sort of looked into claims, right? So an example would be, I think the New York Board of Health was one that uh, looked into these claims of adulteration. And so there's some rumblings of, oh, we found certain things like creosote or fusel oil. And a lot of the ones that were done by state boards, um, probably some of the more legitimate ones, um, there really wasn't any robust evidence that there was mass adulteration. There was uh, reason to believe that there were some tests held by some actual later to be found temperance members. So people that were sort of uh, ministers claiming that there was all of these uh, added things. And in the paper, we kind of go over, they, I think the two guys, uh, Haram Cox and um, Augie, two of the, the, the most prominent members sort of talking about this, they found, I think it was 12 other ingredients um, that no other test um, claimed to have found. So we had reason to be sort of skeptical of their tests, you know, even though they were actually probably occurring in the newspaper with more frequency than some of the, the state board's tests. But yeah, we, we really couldn't find any substantial evidence aside from um, sort of niche markets, right? There was a couple instances um, of people demanding certain things like benzene whiskey, um, I think if I remember correctly, it had sort of an intoxicating effect similar to methamphetamine, um, but there was no widespread um, use of adulteration in, in the whiskey. I thought it was funny uh, that section where you talked about the the clergyman temperance activist uh, who was who, who found a bunch of, you know, I mean, you can imagine the headlines, 12 poisonous chemicals that would have been made, made for great newspaper copy back then. But it reminded me we're still doing the same thing today, arguing about the presence of of toxic chemicals in things, and then how much it matters, right? Like finding the presence of a thing doesn't mean it's in an amount large enough to be harmful um, automatically. So in this case, it's, you know, you can imagine lots of headlines about trace amounts of various plastics or micropollutants. And we're still having these conversations now. Like, do you trust the testing facility? Do you trust the, the person who's promoting the headline? What's the tolerable amount? Like, it feels like a very contemporary conversation in some ways. Yeah. And, and, and kind of on top of that, there's also this sensationalism, right? Like, so tragically, I think a year, year, two years ago, um, someone in Nashville on a party bus fell off and tragically died. And subsequently, there were huge calls for regulation of that industry, mainly driven by the, 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 the physical bar owners you know, trying to get rid of the competition from these, these bar trolleys. Right. Um, so, so it's like, it led to this call for regulation because people were, but once an accident like that happens, there's actually, if you're in that business, you have a strong concern for the safety of your customers and your employees to, to self-regulate and say, gosh, you know, that, that's, that is tragic. We shouldn't let that happen. Cause if you don't customers and, and employees aren't going to um, continue to, to come to your business. Um, so they have, they have this incentive to, to self-regulate, which we'll, we'll get to um, later on. We also looked at two additional pieces of evidence. We, ha we happened to, to sit, you know, 
being in the heart here of Tennessee whiskey and close to bourbon country here, uh, Middle Tennessee State University has this unique collection of historic um, whiskey books. So we went through um, a ton of old historic whiskey recipe trade books, went through all these recipes and looked, did they have these these chemicals in, in the recipe books? Um, and largely uh, corresponding with the other evidence that Macy mentioned, we, we found very little evidence that known poisonous ingredients were being included in whiskey, which kind of makes sense, right? You, you As an entrepreneur, you probably wouldn't want to kill off your customer base. That's not a profit-maximizing strategy. And then the final piece of evidence we looked at is newspaper reportings of, of people dying from whiskey. And it was pretty common for, you know, we found cases of people dying from poisoned flour or poisoned coffee, you know, wide range. Newspapers reported on this and reported on it broadly. So someone died from flour in New York, it'd be reported on, you know, in other states because it was such big news. Um, however, we found very few cases of people dying over over this lengthy period, no regulation, very, very few reports of people dying from poisoned whiskey. And um, the two major instances appear to be um, one is accidental, um, a Stryker Farms incident, an incident in New York where the, the bartender that was serving the alcohol died uh, himself and who was in charge of you know, adding the rectifier components. So it appears to be a, a labeling mistake um, on what they added. And then the other instance was um, it seems to be a, a racially motivated a, a attack against um, some um, Native Americans. All unfortunate, right? Anytime you see anyone die from from poisonous whiskey, um, but it is clear from the evidence. Looking at our, our four pieces of evidence: consumption, um, the recipe books, the, the reported deaths, and then the chemical analyses, that this was not a, a widespread consumer problem that was a threat to, to public safety. I thought it was interesting uh, when you mentioned at the end the the rise of individual bottling. That that you, you talk about this transition from. Once upon a time, whiskey is sold in 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 I guess in casks, um, and then or barrels, and then it's sent to a site, and then you have to trust a intermediary to uncork the cask, and then potentially add something to the whiskey, a rectifier, and then sell it. So it's this complicated process with an with an intermediary that has to be trusted by both sides, both the manufacturer and the consumer. But they, in response, it sounds like to allay consumer fears over this whiskey, they tried to cut the middleman out to some extent by individual bottles. And, and so it's funny, like if you go to a store today and pick up a bottle of whiskey, you think nothing of the kind of like, now I suppose it serves more of a, um, a symbolic or branding function, the like the, the wax or plastic cap as it runs down the side of the bottle which is a nod to a time when they used actual wax, though obviously they don't have to anymore in the same way. But that sounds like it was private action, trying to say, we're responsible, don't fear our whiskey. Can you, can you talk a little more about that? What's this you know, private action to allay concerns over poison whiskey? Yeah, so this this is the fascinating part for me, is that here we find the evidence that these all of what these public crusaders were saying was untrue. But nonetheless... That was a concern for consumers. You had these these people in places of authority, your 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 local minister, you know, people writing the newspaper saying that whiskey is poisonous. So these entrepreneurs in the whiskey industry decided they didn't just sit around and say, "Gosh, I guess we'll just lose business because people think our product is dangerous." No, they proactively uh, sought out ways to 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 confer 
safety and quality or signal safety and quality to consumers. And so just like, uh, you know, there, there are, there's knowledge problems in markets. It takes a little bit for entrepreneurs to figure this out. So we, what we noticed is kind of this trial and error process. So first they started out with, you see this, this they, they make distinguishing a distinctive taste and appearance in their whiskey. This is where you started to see the distinguishing um, between Tennessee whiskey, where it's, it goes through, it's limestone water that goes through uh, maple charcoal. Then you also have bourbon being developed that's going to be uh, aged, you know, aged in barrels um, that are burnt out that give that distinctive taste and appearance. Um, so you can see using different grain uh, grain bills and everything like that, trying to to create a unique flavor and appearance to the whiskey that makes it hard to replicate. But these rectifiers were able to, um, at least to some degree, um, from accounts, I've never had rectified whiskey. Um, you know, you can't go back historically, but from the accounts, they were able to somewhat, you know, it's clear it was a cheaper version. Um, I don't think consumer, you know, it's clear from the accounts that consumers weren't being like tricked. They knew that what they were buying um, was not the genuine product, and very often, um, you, you'd see it advertised jointly. You'd see uh, n- new whiskey and old whiskey, old being aged and and uh, in, in a barrel. So it's very clear, and it was always very is always cheaper for the um, for the non aged product. So that so the distinctive flavor and appearance was okay, but didn't really help them. Then they developed name brands. This was early or late nineteenth um, century, early twentieth century. Um, you saw, you know, we actually have the week that Jack Daniels started putting Jack Daniels in their ads. We have an ad in Alabama from the week before and then the week after, and they just inserted Jack Daniels into the same type script of the ad. It's it's amazing. Um, but what they're trying to do is, is okay, we're going to establish the name brand. We're going to have, you know, some distinct label. They're, of course, going to build on their local reputations that they've built in their local communities. Um, but then... Because whiskey was, as you mentioned, sold out of a barrel, oftentimes a pharmacist or a general store would buy a big barrel of whiskey, and then you just go bring in your own uh, your container and, and, and ladle it out and take it home. It still didn't offer assurance to consumers that what was in that barrel was legitimate and safe. It could say Jack Daniels on it. But once it's opened, I'm not. I don't know 100 percent that that is what is in there. So these entrepreneurs in the whiskey industry had to innovate, and um, they first adopted um, exclusive dealership arrangements. So they would identify someone in Birmingham, Alabama, as a legitimate whiskey seller, and say, you know what, we're going to give you a monopoly rent. You're the only one allowed to sell Jack Daniels in Birmingham, Alabama. Anyone else trying to sell it? Consumers should be doubtful of its uh, extremely doubtful of its quality and safety. We we can't vouch for it, but we do vouch for it coming from this dealer. Um, so that would obviously create an incentive for these dealers not to, to dilute the project or, or or sell rectified whiskey in its place um, because they would lose that 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 exclusive um, arrangement. And then, of course, um, the, the the final step in this process was the introduction of glass bottles. These were first introduced in the, the whiskey industry in the 1870s. It's very expensive at that time. Um, it wasn't until 1903 that the first glass bottle um, manufacturing machine was invented that lowered the cost. So these were very costly signals. And the first advertisement we have uh, for Old Forester for um, whiskey sold in the bottle as monkeys trying to get into it. So they're, they're saying, we're not going to allow anyone to monkey around with our product. So we're assuring you, consumer, here's a sealed bottle. They'd actually print out the seals and what the signature looked like in the newspaper ads. You can be assured that what you're buying is of legitimate quality. 
Um, so that was, you know, this just this process of entrepreneurs trying trying to find a way to assure consumers of safety and quality because the prevailing way to um, assure consumers through government regulation was the introduction of, of bottled and bond where, okay, if you're aging whiskey, you're going to age it in a government warehouse where we have a lock and key to it. No one else can get into it, but that still created the general store problem, right? Even to have a government stamp, it was aged in a government warehouse. Once that barrel's out, there's no telling once it's opened if it actually contains um, genuine uh, the genuine product. So the entrepreneurs were were leaps and bounds ahead of of the regulators in developing this mechanism. Someone I, I like bourbon myself, and so I learned from this article the whole bottled and bond history. And I went to a TCU football game with friends uh, a year ago, and it was TCU Texas. Um, anyway, afterwards the the friends and I went to a bar and they had E.H. Taylor bottled in bond bourbon. And I said, what is that? So anyway, I, I said, this is really, I'd never heard of it. And I hadn't heard of the bottled in bond, didn't know what it was. And from the article we're discussing, I learned this was a, a, a government regulatory attempt to reassure consumers that was, uh, it had, had a private competition uh, basis. And this article explains how the entrepreneurs actually were doing something other than bottled in bond to create uh, assurances outside of the, the government regulatory process. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's fascinating. Um, and the origins for this paper were actually a distillery tour for it's a little known Tennessee whiskey, Nelson's Greenbrier, but it was actually prior to prohibition, the major um, Tennessee whiskey, way bigger than Jack Daniels. Just prohibition, Jack Daniels was able to get some special provisions um, from government um, that allowed them to, to to sustain themselves. And Nelson's Greenbrier was shut down, and for many decades not in operation. Um, but the um, great 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 grandsons, or something close to that. Uh, we're driving through Nashville, and they saw a sign like this used to be the Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery, and these these brothers were like, "Is that our great 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 grandfather?" Like, and they dug into it, and as they were doing the research, they came across newspaper articles that printed the exact recipe and process for making the product, and that's what piqued my interest. I was like, "Why were these?" And so they were able to reopen that distillery. But my question in doing this distillery tour was. Why would anyone print their exact re recipe and their whole process in the paper? And that just led to this unraveling, like they were trying to assure consumers of safety and quality. In fact, they held, um, and I'm not even sure that if we included this in the actual even academic paper, but they held an annual barbecue and they'd pay for a train to come to, to Nashville, take you out to the Nelson's Greenbrier distillery, and they would show you everything. Like, look at look at how we do this as a way to assure consumers of safety and quality. So they were taking some 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 gigantic steps um, to overcome this this misperception, as Macy and I find, that whiskey was commonly poisoned. It's kind of remarkable. I mean, you can imagine if like tomorrow out of concerns over, I don't know, salmonella poisoning in chicken, KFC was like, we're gonna publish the eleven herbs and spices recipe in the New York Times. Take out a big one page ad. I mean that's kind of the equivalent in a sense. Um, and it's, you know, trade secrets are only valuable in as much as they signal their signaling function to the public. And sometimes not keeping it secret has a more valuable signaling function than keeping something secret. 
Now, everyone saw coverage two winters ago, poor Texans shivering in a snap freeze because they didn't have power. Pictures of Ted Cruz on his way to Cancun proliferated on social media. Uh, but we have a paper by Andrew Cleet, The Electricity Two-Step. And he notes, this was no small matter. 200 people died. The estimated economic loss for Texas was a rather incredible $100 billion. Now, even accounting for the unusual cold weather, the system, I mean, most electricity systems have some extra capacity built in so that, you know, if one plant goes down, the whole system, the whole grid doesn't fall apart. So, Peter, why wasn't there enough backup? Why isn't there always enough backup for when a electricity generation plant goes down? Well, there's official criteria that utility regulators use to deal with contingencies, and that's the the N minus one problem, I call it. So you, you, you model a grid, you model a system, and then you make believe that a transmission line goes down or a big generator goes down, and then you see whether the system can hold up or not. But you don't keep going, right? You don't do the N minus three and N minus four problem. And so then that's what happened to Texas, and it's happened to other places. And you then get into the classic economic dilemma of how much should you spend or how, how much should you spend to deal with very rare events. Texas is the most market-oriented electricity system in the country. Until this uh, latest problem occurred in 2021, they're the only area in the United States that doesn't have, well, I got to back up here first. So there are deregulated places in the United States and there are still conventional regulated places in the United States. In regulated electricity markets, there are still vertically integrated utilities where the generator, the transmitter, and the distributor of the electricity is one company. Okay. In the Northeast, in PJ and Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, and in Texas, the vertically integrated traditional regulatory model was modified 30 years ago, and the generators were spun off, and they are independent profit companies whose rates are not rate regulated. They, they generate power, and they bid into a market every day in the interaction of supply and demand determines the market price for electricity in those markets. As a hedge against that not working, the Northeast and the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland interconnection, PJM, have what are called capacity markets on top of this um, market generation system that I described. In capacity markets, generators are paid to exist and be available for emergencies. And they don't bid into the market system. They just hang around. And they're paid to hang around. And then when we need them, they operate. Texas did not have that system. They had what's called an energy-only system where the prices were allowed to be very high during shortages, particularly in the summer when we have peak demand for air conditioning. And those prices would generate what economists call economic rents, right? Very large profits. And the hope was that the profits from those 
10 or 15 or 20 days a year when you really make a lot of money, uh, both in the winter extremes and in the summer extremes, that that money would be sufficient to get the generators to behave properly and be available when we need them because they can make so much money. Just for the chance that there'll be a, a heat spike and they're there ready to go online and, and reap, you know, 10x the normal profit margin or whatever. Correct. So the uh, for Cato people, for libertarians, the we have to deal with the, the the fact that the headline, the headline against our way of thinking is that well, the most market-oriented electric system in the country failed miserably in the winter of 2020, in February of 2021. What do you guys have to say, right? I mean, so I've, I wrote a blog post in February of 2021 that talked about what we needed to figure out. And this article by Andy Cleet goes into um, what Texas has done itself um, to, quote, reform the system. And depending on your point of view, from our point of view, sadly, the reforms are not market-oriented. They are, um, basically, we are socializing the costs of backup power because the political actors have concluded that the public can't be educated sufficiently about the role of prices in catastrophe. You know, in other words, the use of very, very high prices during either blackouts uh, in the summer or the winter, that the function those prices have was to reduce demand and to get supply incentivized to operate, that that is so difficult to explain to people that they've backtracked. And, and so instead, the alternative is you pay more all the time for excess capacity in the event that you need it, and then instead of the Texas model, which is low prices most of the time and very high prices a tiny fraction of the time, Texas is drifting to a system of higher prices all of the time and less high prices some of the time, if you can follow what I'm saying. And um, I think rather than argue, okay, Cato, I mean, the Rather than argue markets work under all circumstances, et cetera, et cetera, the, the traditional utility model and the expectation that consumers have of it's on and it's always on and it's not going to cost too much and it's not going to be out for very long, the notion that you ought to have real-time prices and then you ought to think of your own backup generation that you buy, right? Um, certainly, I have friends who live in Florida and they have, uh, after what happened last year in the hurricane in Florida, they were not directly hit, but they were near enough that they said, we're going to buy a backup generator to power our house for a week and that it would run uh, refrigeration and air conditioning and we'd have enough to, to keep going. And that's actually in a cost-benefit analysis how you ought to think about this problem, which is, the central provision of reliability is what Texas is doing. And you could think of the private provision of reliability in that the central provision is too expensive, so I'm going to spend four or $5,000 on a backup generator because the actual cost of making the whole grid sustain in either a summer problem or a winter problem 
if that cost were more than four or five thousand dollars a household on average, then in fact we shouldn't centrally improve the grid. We should decentralize the reliability component. I think that's the easiest way for listeners to think about what this article is about. That was common when I lived in Maine as well, but for the flip season, winter. So most homes uh, had some sort of backup generator source. I, I bought one when I moved up there. All it takes is the power going out for more than a day in the middle of a main winter to, for you to regret your decision not to get a generator. Um, so it's, so, you know, that's the, that's the flip season from hurricane season in Florida, but that's an interesting way of putting it. And, and it's probably worth noting too, I can imagine the risks of, so, you know, you have a backup system, whether it is a, a market provision system, you know, subsidiary system uh, to ensure extra capacity on the market, or you just bake it into your, you know, your initial, you don't have a functioning market at all and you just mandate X amount of, of energy be provided at all times. Um, a third possibility, right? Or is okay, what's the third one? Demand response, which is okay. voluntary getting off the grid when things go south, i.e. so many industrial customers around the country are on what are called interruptible rates. They pay less because the grid operator can uh, cut them off during times of stress. And if the industry's big enough, they have their own cogen on site anyway, right? Oil refineries, all these big, big, big electricity users. Because every hour they're offline is huge money for them lost. So they need to have backup themselves, right? And in fact, they play the market. Some of these cogens for large industries actually also feed into the grid in market-oriented states, right? They're based on the prices that they uh, see on the grid. It's like rooftop solar, right? You can have you can use it yourself or you can sell to the grid. And then and so indus large industrial consumers have long been on interruptible contracts. Texas had this also for residential consumers, but when they found out that they were cut off, they got mad and then there was reneging. And then, the, so when it, when it comes time to fulfill contracts for residential customers who signed up for interruptible power, um, they claimed they didn't, you know, blah, 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 blah. So. The politics of it is the political elites in Texas, the governor and the legislature basically decided enforcing that market commitment on all these voters turns out to be very, very difficult. But in econ, in an econ class, we would talk about we need real pricing to consumers. We need more demand flexibility. We need people to sign up for if the price reaches X on my automated thermostat, I'm going to interrupt my own air conditioning or my heating. Then the question is, would they, would they stick to that contract that they signed? And if the widespread answer is no, then the demand side of things, even though it works in class, does not seem to work in a real world consumer political economy context. And that that's trouble for our views because it, either we need a lot more education or we have to understand that people really want electricity and really want to pay for it. And then, again, the other option is uh, having your own generation backup. And in the end, that may be more acceptable to consumers than demand responsiveness of the sort that I've just described. 
how much of this can be distilled down to, you know, people like a free or discounted lunch and then don't like paying the bill it, when they find out it's not actually. So, so in the case of, uh, you know, we have individual folks signing variable contracts where it's like, yes, my power could be interrupted if demand spikes. Uh, well, they do that at the uh, upfront because they get a cheaper price for their le electricity provision. Um, and don't expect that ever to kick in. Then it kicks in and, oh no, my lunch was not as discounted as I thought it was. Um, and if you, that can, you know, that doesn't scale, right? If everyone thinks that way, then the market falls apart because these are hard to enforce contracts when it's small players, individual homes involved, or, or even I think of, you know, in a non-market setting, like all the brownout issues out in California, uh, which is my understanding is not as market-based as Texas. There too, if you have a system that is has lots of rate controls, price setting, um, you don't rely on market pricing as much. Well, there's political pressure never to raise prices too much. And so you you end up with, with lack of supply to meet excess demand for a different set of reasons. But at the end of the day, it's because people wanted cheap electricity and they didn't want to pay for it. You know, they want to pay for the excess capacity. So whether it's through the political process or through a dysfunctional kind of market problem. It, is that, I mean, how much of that can be yes, bring I mean, down to? Well, look at gasoline. I mean, look at the way, not electricity, but look at the way gasoline markets work. Do you realize prices, it's not electricity, it's not prices every, you know, five minutes, right? It's, but the gasoline oil system has to keep everyone supplied in real time, not real like electricity, but within days. So most people don't realize that the total inventory in the world for oil is like 20 days. Okay. That's, I mean, if you get a little shock and then prices rise quite a bit because demand is inelastic, everyone, you know what, they, they don't like that. And they say that the oil companies are, you know what, to us and this and that and the other thing. And again, but energy markets in real time have to equate supply and demand, gasoline in the 20-day kind of framework, electricity in a basically a five-minute framework. That's, that's, well, oil more or less works most of the, I mean, it really does. It's amazing when shocks hit how... Prices go up, people squeal, demand goes down, supply goes up a bit. It sort of works out. It, for, I mean, the whole Russia shock, right? The Russia and natural gas in Europe. I mean, it was all falling apart. Times had articles saying this can't. It just we're just not going to work. Well, people are going to freeze on mass this winter, and it, yeah, it yeah. worked. I mean, prices went up a lot. Demand went down. Got reallocated. It was unpleasant. Right? It's unpleasant. Uh, our colleague Ryan Bourne, his parents still live in England. And he said, "Wow, it's tough telling your parents about how markets work when it's your parents and they don't like what's going." On. But and in the end, did. it turned out far better than the doomsayers were warning earlier that year, right? Correct. Like, yeah, yeah, correct. But it is—it's very, very, very unpleasant when it happens, and etc. So, I give my own example. I mean. We're on. We were on interruptible contracts in Maryland, my household. I've, I chose a, 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 a to get a discount in return for being interruptible during peak demand days. This was twenty years ago. My wife had surgery in May, and May is a 
a time when generators are offline for maintenance. Well, we got a hot day. And guess what? My wife was home from surgery, recovering, and I was at Cato, and we got interrupted at home. She called and she said, Dear Mr. Economist, do you get your butt home and fix this? And I said, Well, I can't because I signed up for et cetera, et cetera. So I have private experience about how difficult it is to actually stick to the contract you signed uh, when, because you don't, you think, ah, it's a free lunch. Well, it isn't. Turns out now and then the, the terms yeah. kick in and yeah. oops. So if we can put this in, uh, I, I suppose, in context, I mean, it sounds like libertarian response is markets aren't perfect. Uh, they're, you know, it, they're more responsive. Over the long durée, you're going to get better outcomes. You're going to spend less money and get better quality service than a non-market run system. You'll get fewer brownouts than California or so on during normal, relatively normal times. But there are risks of the market being dysfunctional, falling apart for a period of time during kind of black swan events. But this is a reason for more market provision. Like, so Texas didn't have that secondary market, right? It didn't have the capacity market. And maybe if they had, they would have been more flexible in the crisis. So the, the, the solution is not let's back away from markets and become more like California or whatever. It's to become more market friendly and add the capacity market. Is that the response that's one response. I mean, again, I, I'm. Uh, we need to try more on the demand side. To try, we need. I mean, um, that we have wholesale flexible pricing and then fixed retail prices. But through the um, one of the, uh, uh, well, the country has been wired up with real time meters all over the place, but they're not used by anybody, even in Texas, right? Even in Texas, they sign up for market prices, but they sign up for fixed prices. They're not actually varying in real time like the wholesale price does. Why is this just it's unpopular Everyone's politically? Scared. Everyone says you can't, if you do this to consumers, well, you do need software in the home, right? You do need something which says you want to know if the price has gone from cents a kilowatt hour to dollars a kilowatt hour. The consumer needs to be informed of that fact, and they need then to have programmed into their system whether they shut the AC off, whether they inter, you know, what do they do? Um, and right. that has to be done with software, right? You don't, you can't have yeah. consumers all day looking at the electricity Constantly. price to then say, <laughs> "I got to go home to change yeah. the air." You see what I'm saying? So. But there's a possibility if the smart home revolution ever actually yes. happens, it's always about to happen. But you know, like I have, I have a friend here in New Jersey. They have generous subsidies for rooftop solar, which I have my correct disagreements with whether this is smart policy. But you know, it makes sense individually to to use it. And uh, he is constantly tracking every, you know, almost every day in the summer. He's tracking how much. Uh, you know, he's getting, and then so that he can make right. this, you know, sell it right. back to the grid and actually make money. Um, and so, you know, some people have that capacity now. I imagine as homes get smarter, uh, more people will. Um, and so it'll be, it'll be maybe, maybe this will sound like a really quaint problem 50 years from now, like primitive times before people, you know, because it'll be, be matter of fact. Um, but for now, it does. 
yeah, yeah. I think that's possible. I think that's possible. But for now, the, the standard response, even in market-oriented Texas, is to, in effect, mandate and subsidize extra supply and socialize the costs of that because the political will to do all the things we've been describing, um, no governor wants to face what happened in 2021 in Texas and have all your, all your voters uh, not like you. That is unpleasant. Talking about the political will reminds me of another ongoing contemporary fight in Washington, D.C. I think most listeners will have heard that the federal government is suing Amazon for alleged antitrust violations. Um, though, And the, the Google trial. And yeah, is, is, is taking place. Google trial is taking place as we as we record this. As we record, so we'll, maybe the results will be out by the time this is published. Um, and it's a big deal. I mean, this, these might be the biggest antitrust moves since the Microsoft case in the 1990s. Um, and we actually conveniently have two working papers. I'm sure that's not an accident. The uh, that Peter, you selected two papers that deal with antitrust. We've got doomsday mergers a retrospective study of false alarms by albrecht our fruits and man and killer acquisitions re-examined economic hyperbole in the age of populist antitrust by jonathan barnett i mean basically what the point of these working papers for our readers is that if you read the national press you would think that there's no intellectual response to the current stance of the Biden administration to bring back what's called populist uh, antitrust. And I just, so sometimes what Cato does, what we try to do is show our readers that there are credible intellectual arguments against the current political zeitgeist. And with antitrust, I've been surprised by um, how vigorous the intellectual response is. And sadly, and I don't like, I'm not into conspiracy theories and all that, but, and I don't like to use the word the mainstream press and things like that. But there is a lack of coverage in the Washington Post and the New York Times of what I think are good scholars doing good work, making um, intellectual attacks on the resurgence of what's called Brandeisian or populist antitrust um, by Ms. Khan and the FTC and the Biden administration. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And so the working paper discussion we're having is that there are two papers in the current issue that uh, take on this task. So maybe give us a little background the the basics on the, these different schools of thoughts you've referenced. You know, populist or Brandeisian uh, schools of thought on antitrust and it's having a moment right now, um, as opposed to I don't think we've used the phrase yet, but a more consumer welfare standard for antitrust action. Unpack that kind of back history for us a little bit. Well, the statutes, right? The the Clayton Antitrust Act and the Sherman Antitrust Act just say there are things out there and they're called monopolies and they're bad and we need to do something about them. So the so the laws talk about a lack of definition. That that leaves uh, the judicial enforcement of said laws to vary over time depending on both the pilot, the zeitgeist out there in the world, and intellectual developments in the academy. I think you can argue that intellectual developments have their greatest effect on any trust law because the law is so vague that 
the lawyers who go to leading law schools and learn what they should or shouldn't do about any trust, learn from professors and then implement said things they learned in class because the discretion allowed by the law is so large that it is, it's allowed scholars to have much more influence on, on antitrust law than, they, than they, we would on statutes that were ironically written in a Cato way, which is to be definitive, right? So I, the odd thing for us in this intellectually is since the 70s, when the so-called Bork book came out and then the antitrust changed to have a consumer welfare standard. This is Robert Bork, the, the attempted Supreme Court nominee who, correct. yes, was blocked. That all yeah. came about not because the law changed, but because an intellectual movement occurred. So ironically, if Cato... <laughs> Well, we might not have antitrust laws in the first place, but if they were written and they were very specific, the way they were re reformed in our direction could not have occurred. I mean, that again, a kind of irony. So consumer welfare just says, is the alleged market power or bad behavior of the company or companies in, in a merger context, would that result in prices to consumers being higher because of less competition? That's it. And until recently, since the Bork Revolution in the 70s, the Supreme Court and all the courts obviously follow the Supreme Court. All antitrust has been just about will prices to consumers go up or down because of this behavior? Full stop. No other consent, no nothing. What the Brandeisian populist movement worries about is something called larger concerns. And if you try to pin down what those are, it's hard, but they have power. They, they have, their bigness allows them to do something, not necessarily in markets, but maybe in politics or maybe in, I don't know, fill in the gap. So it's, it, it, I'm not the best spokesman for the Brandeisian way of thinking because I don't think that way. But the public has worries and you can rabble rouse people to worry about companies and then politics has to respond, and that's what we're seeing now. So I suppose consumer welfare standard does have a, a fairly um, concrete, you can kind of measure, like what does the price look like when there's competition? What does the price look like now that there's less competition, um, yay or nay? So it, it, there's something a little more formed there. A famous case, well, the Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, a &P, the first supermarket. Oh, they were huge. They were bigger than Walmart once upon a time. And they were the Walmart of his time. Yeah, and they right, threatened right. the way groceries were uh, sold to people from behind a counter, et cetera, et cetera. And there were any trust suits against A&P, and it was, it was hurt. And everyone now looking backwards says, that's crazy. Supermarkets are wonderful. Anyway, we're now going through a similar thing, which is that Google, right, default browsers on phones, right? Google is alleged to have paid phone manufacturers entities. to make theirs the default search. Yeah. And then the question is how, so that means people who use Google search are directed by the Google algorithms to the people who pay Google to direct people to those firms. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if you're that less, so some of this revolves around how lazy or not lazy are consumers. And if you just go to Target and Walmart websites, you're, when I shop, I shop not through Google. I shop at the websites of stores. 
and I do my usual, I compare like four or five, all right? And I have Target and Walmart and anything else I can find where I think I might find that product. And thus the default, you know, what, whatever, I just, through my natural instincts, avoid the alleged problem. But if people are lazy and Google then has search power because it's everywhere and the other search providers aren't, people don't know how to uninstall Google or install the others and they don't, and they, and they're lazy and they don't search, then Google's uh, advertising pricing behavior could direct consumers towards things that were actually higher priced and they wouldn't know it. That's the allegation. Um, and that's what the trial's over. And, and Anyway, but these working papers uh, do something different. They look back, well, one, the first looks backwards at cases where journalists, where, where populists have said, if this merger happens, it's the end. It's, it's the end. terrible for consumers. There's not going to be any competition. Right. Um, did, did you, th there's a bunch of them in there. Did you have a particular favorite well, that, that stood out from the bunch? Amazon Whole Foods. Oh yeah. 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 That's a good one. The stock of other supermarket companies on the day the Amazon Whole Foods merger was announced, supermarket stocks went down. Everyone thought, oh my God, this is the end to I mean, we're, we're, right? Amazon, everything they touch. They're going to swallow up all the grocery stores. Supermarket industry will be basically be a one-stop shop through Amazon and someday. True, that was prices will be lower, maybe, but Safeway and Albertsons and um, you know all the other chains around the country, they're toast. They are toast. <laughs> well, <laughs> here we um, are. Whole Foods market share hasn't changed and consumers have enjoyed more convenience and lower prices, right? And Amazon is sort of not convinced it, that its purchase of Whole Foods was... They kind of regret it now, actually. Turns yeah. selling, buying food is hard. It's different than... It's different from selling, buying books or diapers. Well, that are durables, or, right? Durable, yeah. Food yeah. Inv inventory management, it's a nightmare. How do you get fresh stuff? When do you throw it out? How much do you buy? How much do you have on hand? Sort of like electricity, like we talked about, right? It's not quite real time, uh, but it's daily, right? Prices for food varies, and supermarkets have to figure out how much to have on hand and how much people are going to buy. You have to know how elastic demand is. Well, the special on Brussels sprouts, how much do you have to lower the price to actually clear the market? Turns out Amazon wasn't that good at figuring all that out. We probably don't have that many farmers listening to uh, this podcast, but uh, maybe I maybe Bears acquisition of Monsanto, the whole seed thing. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That was alleged to increase the price of corn and soy and cotton seeds and da 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 da. Well, seed prices have remained constant, according to this paper. Um, I didn't know about I'm, Google's acquisition of Fitbit is another case in which negative predictions did not pan out. Uh, Fitbit's market share of wearable devices has declined, and Google does not use the data from Fitbit in its advertising platform. So this so this first paper is a list of failed dooms predict doomsday predictions right, of antitrust right. advocates. And I found yeah. it. I mean, I yeah. think readers will find it interesting. It will remind well, them of the past and remember that 
what newspapers are not good, in, good at doing is going backwards and looking at the, the times where they raised reader fears unnecessarily. It, it feels like they're hitting up like, against a fundamental fact, which is that things, it sounds really basic, Things, no two things are the same, right? So there's a viral TikTok going on, going around right now where it's two guys pretending to be Yamaha executives. And one says, okay, we started this company. What new products are we going to sell? And he starts with like, how about trumpets and uh, oboe reeds? He's like, okay, I'm feeling the theme here. I'm feeling the theme. And he's like, and jet skis and offboard motors. He's like, wait, wait, the, wait, what are you talking? Are we going to have, a, are these supposed to be the same manufacturing plant? What are you talking about? This, you know, what, what are we going to do? But the whole point of the joke is that that's weird. Like Yamaha makes sense in their own context. They're good at making musical instruments and motors for whatever, you know, historical reason, but that's unusual. Like it is hard for a company that's really good. They found productive efficiencies in the manufacturing of motors to also find productive efficiencies in the manufacture of oboe reeds, right? That doesn't happen all that often. And so part of this, it feels like with the antitrust, it's like, yes, Amazon was very good at finding productive efficiencies in the, in the being the intermediary for durable goods books and diapers and so on. But it doesn't mean that everything is like books or diapers or that you can squeeze out the same productive efficiencies. And sure enough, that's that hasn't happened because they're different. They're different sectors with different supply chains, different logics, different efficiencies. So maybe lay off on the panic a little bit. And the the other side of the coin is if you're a company that's doing amazing, i.e. a Google or an Amazon or whatever, you probably get a little arrogant. I mean, sometimes you believe your own press releases, which is, we are effing good at everything and everyone should be scared. We're not going to say that, but they should be. And then they bite off more than they can chew and then, oops, yeah. Okay, now the other paper uh, by Barnett is more focused specifically on big tech firms that snapped up small startup companies, uh, which critics claim is anti-competitive, anti-consumer. I think what one of the commonly cited instances is uh, Facebook buying Instagram, as Correct. often brought up in paying antitrust conversations. What did Barnett find kind of is more actually common in that kind of startup acquisition cycle? Well, he found that it is common, right? That, that the, the point of the paper is that if you want to stop big companies from buying up small startups, you are actually going to stop an amazing amount of entrepreneurial innovation in the United States because the most common method for innovation to occur is a startup inventing something, a new, a better mousetrap, and then being bought up by the bigger company. But he goes on to say, this is not bad. This is in fact, well, first, stylized fact. If you put a kibosh on this, you're going to stop innovation in the United States. Two, why is innovation in the United States occur this way? It does, is it mischief? And he argues, no. Small startups can pay everyone in stock and not cash. They don't have cash. They have ideas, they have young people, and they make large bets. And now and then, the large bets make people very, very, very rich. What large so firms... You can attract high-quality people for your startup if you say, look, I can't pay you a lot now. In fact, but I there's a chance. Yes, there's a chance that you'll become a billionaire or you know multimillionaire ten years from now. 
if if this company is successful? Do you buy the vision? Do you buy the idea? Come on board, right? And the paper has the data that only 4% of startups ever have IPOs. They become public themselves, right? Instead, the majority of them are bought by large companies, but even those acquisitions are a loss for both the small company and the large company. They end up, the innovation occurs, but in fact, it can't be scaled up and it doesn't work out. And then a smaller percentage of startups that are bought, both the startup people make money and then the acquirer makes money by scaling it up for distribution networks and things like that. And that's the way it works. So this paper was very good in, in explaining how the system works what percent of small companies actually end up being successful economically, which isn't very many. And, but they all, those that are um, successful are almost overwhelmingly bought by large companies. Very few startups actually become independent companies on their own through the stock, through a public offering on the stock market. And his reasoning was simply um, large companies can't pay stock to every, it just it wouldn't work because um, everyone's on salary, and then if you give some people stock, then they get very rich, and then everyone else in the see. In effect, you you farm this little system out where everyone makes large bets to an entirely different ecosystem, and then you acquire them. Um, That's kind of the innovation engine. You've got the little startups who take risks, innovate. Most of them fail, fall apart. And then the big companies that are good at scaling, at distribution, at doing stuff on a consumer scale, on a consumer level, um, they acquire the winners, who or who they think are the winners. Correct. Because they might, they might get it wrong, but they acquire some of those and then bring that to the masses. And so you can imagine if you, I, I suppose if you disrupted this kind of beneficial ecosystem it could be a problem even for a successful small startup. Let's say you had really rigorous patent laws. They successfully defended their innovation, but like scaling is hard. So they might not be able to scale. And so consumers are left without access to whatever this innovation is, especially if it's strictly patented or their own prop- proprietary property um, for years because it couldn't be scaled effectively by yep. this little yep. tiny startup. Well so said. consumers are worse off in that world, right? Yeah. And, and just a footnote to your point, Barnett's other, ju- not his, Barnett's a patent guy. He's a pro-patent guy. So that's what's leaking through a bit in this article is that if you really care about small companies staying independent, then you need to believe in strong enforcement of patent laws because what startups have is intellectual property. They have intellectual ideas, but no ability to turn them into anything. And in a world with weak patent enforcement, acquiring large or large companies, acquiring small companies is the only way that this intellectual property can then get um, operationalized. If you care deeply about small staying small and staying independent, then you also should believe in strong patent law. And this is bar, I mean, you don't have, Right, you don't have to go that far, but yeah. You don't have to buy that part of his article for to get benefit from this article, but listeners should know that that's his hobby horse. He's a pro-patent guy, and that's the, the, a hidden agenda in this article. Too. Sure. 
Well, and there, there's something there. I mean, it's um, well, I'm reminded previous... of the marginal revolution, like the the wrote a curve on a napkin that you there's probably an optimal uh, strictness of patent that's that's best for you know for innovation and consumer utility. That if it's too weak or too strong, both are problematic. Um, I, I have an uncle who invented. He's like a you know garage inventor and builds his own guitars. He invented an uh, an in guitar tuner back in the 80s back when this was you know rarer um and so you could always see it if you were in tune as the player but the the public wouldn't be able to see it and he invented this patented it and then along came i think it might have been yamaha we're <laughs> just talking about yamaha yamaha came along and said uh and they infringed on the patent very bald first they offered to buy it from him for an insulting low, low price he said no so they infringed and dared him to sue and he went to his lawyer and the lawyer said well look i can file anyone can file a case um, even if you win, it will cost you far more money than, you know, it's just not worth it. I'll take your money. Um, but you probably won't win because they have for every one of me, there's a dozen guys in suits, corporate lawyers. So in, in theory though, you have a situation where his patent protection as the little guy was too weak and this could be suboptimal. It discouraged him from doing any more innovation for sure. Cause what's the point, right? He stopped patenting and innovating in that area as a result. But you can also mention a situation where the flip is true, where his patent is so strong that only his little company provides this thing and there's no scaling. So the world is bereft of accurately tuned guitar performances. Right. <laughs> as I think a there's result. a famous case of someone claims that they have a patent on one click electronic shopping. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, the yeah. Am, right? You one I've heard of that vaguely. Yeah. And then he sues it. I mean, anyway, that's the buy sort of now the, button. Yeah, he sued over it. And, and, and he, again, there's the great thing about being intellectual is we can sort of say there's a trade off and there's some sweet point. And it's obviously between the two absurd examples that we have elicited. But in the real world, lawyers and judges, and they have to figure out where the boundary is. And that's, uh, the, trickier when the examples are not absurd why is antitrust hot again why now what's changed in how intellectuals and policymakers are thinking about antitrust well the good news for cato is we argue intellectual argument matters and it appears that an antitrust it does i mean lena khan's paper in the yale law review which she wrote as a law student it's made history Right? She said, enough. We need to go backwards. Brandeis was right. And the time, right? The, I mean, it just, it's like she started a reversion to the me, right? If you think of intellectual history as having cycles, she's, she's the person who wrote an article that sent everyone looking backwards and said, Robert Bork and Chicago School and all that, we've gone too far. Stop. And right, and, and now everyone's responding to her, and she became chair of the FTC under Biden. And so it's again, so Cato is involved in the business of intellectual discussion. And the good news is, here's an example of where intellectual discussion matters. The bad news is, where we we didn't we're not winning this one so far. But the papers in the current issue of regulation and other papers I've ran. I think should tell our readers that our response is vigorous and real, and I think eventually people will listen 
uh, to what we have to say because um, I think it, I mean, to be honest, some of the stuff our side says can be weak and it can be doctrinaire, like markets work always or whatever, and then people roll their eyes and we just say it over and over again. Well, here there's actual evidence and uh, I liked both these papers for, for that reason. And really, that's the Unintended Consequences podcast in a nutshell for you. Our critique of excessive government regulation can be grounded in data, in fact, not just in doctrinaire libertarian belief. In the history of blended whiskey, Texas electricity, and anti-big tech antitrust, each in their own ways illustrates the limits and risks of government intervention. Thank you for listening, and thank you also to our producer, Landry Ayers. If you enjoyed this episode of Unintended Consequences, we'd appreciate if you'd leave us a review on the podcast download platform of your choice. Until next time, be well.